get bad now. We, we all the good conversation happens uh, before. It's like that <laughs> old Warner Brothers c- cartoon of the guy who finds a frog in a box that can sing like old uh, vaudeville. Oh yes, Papa. <laughs> and as soon Hello, as he shows it to anybody, he just turns into a frog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. So right, we were going to talk today about the state of publishing and green building and sustainability. Uh, so it'll mean we do a bit of blowing smoke up a passive house and bemoaning the fall of tree hugger. And I was it's not fallen exactly. It's uh, would you say it, it's just lost everything? You know, all of the good people who knew how to <laughs> run it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All it, it just lost all of the things that made it good. Exactly. It's just a, uh, it's 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 an empty husk, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> So it's we're a bunch of, it's a bunch of Google search terms. Anyhow, <laughs> well, this is it. Yeah. They have value and merit on their own terms. To uh, anyway, right. So we're here with Lloyd Alter, uh, formerly of Tree Hugger. <laughs> we were planning to record the former Tree Hugger. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I hope he's still cozy with trees. I don't know if I don't know how widely the news will be known. I don't know how widely people will know Treehugger. Um, in fact, Jeff, do you want to introduce Lloyd? Because you know him better, and then we'll let him speak for himself, obviously. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so, where so, we talk. Jesus. So, so, some of our, I think Lloyd's, he's better known on this side of the Atlantic than he has a right to be, I would say. I think I'm better known on your side of the Atlantic than on this side of the Atlantic, frankly. <laughs> well, certainly the, uh, the, the the sort of stuff that you've been advocating for probably chimes better with the kind of uh, more, you know, we've got um, cultural and historic uh, residues in certain parts of, of these of this ar- archipelago uh, in, uh, in, in between the UK and Ireland towards um you know, austere uh, Presbyterianism, all that kind of stuff. You know, um, so there's a, there's probably reasons. Not that you don't have that uh, on the on the other side of the water too, uh, but um, certainly uh, a lot of the messages that you were getting out there chimed within the the the, the, the uh, more technical, uh, you know, the frustrated kind of green building community that was you, you know getting getting sick of the kind of marketing spiel and uh and well-meaning nonsense that you get in some quarters um so it was from my perspective been wonderful to, you know to 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 have uh an ally from another part of the world uh doing you know well who agrees who i agree with so much you know and who, who's saying um so many sensible things not just about buildings in terms of uh of uh, ensuring they perform properly and are, are low energy and comfortable and so on. But, you know, uh, thinking about how we build them and where we build them and build and, and not um, building buildings that are monuments to ourselves or to the egos of the designer. Um, so there's, there's a, I just think uh, Tree Hugger and your, your workload at Tree Hugger has been, uh, you know, an amazing resource. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's. It, I was devastated to hear um, about uh, the tree hugger kind of getting rid of all of its staff, yourself included. I gather uh, last week, um, and uh, I just think it's critical that we find a way of uh, of finding other uses for, for. You know, you've got you've got to be recycled, uh, salvaged, and <laughs> and, and yeah. put put to other uses. You know, uh, reconstituted. Yeah. Well, you know, we we can, yeah, I don't know, we 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 can uh, put put you through like a, a cellulose machine or something. I don't know. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> you've not just written for Treehugger either. You've written for The Guardian yeah. over here as well. You, you're yes. a published author. Like, where do you come from? How do you how did you get into this space for anyone who might not already know you? Which sounds unbelievable given Jeff's intro. I got into this totally by accident. I used to be um, an architect, a practicing architect, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, and so when one of my biggest clients in about 1990 offered, asked if I knew anyone who wanted to go work for him as a developer, I said, yes, me. And I closed my architectural practice and uh, went to work as a real estate developer. And then in 1996, went out my own as a real estate developer with a partner and did a beautiful couple of buildings that people still talk about and that are still very well known at a time when the the development business was just getting started after the 90s recession. And I had one of those big fights with my partner and I lost and he ended up with the company and I ended up sort of unemployed just after the turn of the uh, century with not knowing what I was going to do. And I'd really always been upset with the way buildings got built. When I was building my buildings, the way concrete got delivered, the way the trades stepped over everybody else's work and had always been interested in prefabrication. In fact, I should go right back to say my thesis in architecture school folded out of a shipping container at a time when no one knew what shipping containers even were. Uh, but my dad was in the shipping container business, so I had a head start on that. Um, so anyhow, I went to Canada's biggest prefab company that was basically making wood frame modular boxes for people who had houses and wanted houses in the country and said, we're going to hire really good architects, the best architects, and we're going to sell architect design prefab. And nobody knew much about prefab. And so I started a website that I updated every day, which was a proto blog. Before there was blogging software, I was updating in 2002 every day and trying to sell prefab. But modular doesn't travel very far. So I got all these wonderful, after being in the New York Times and everything, I got all these calls from the States. Uh, sorry, can't cross the border. Uh, sorry, 500 kilometers is the limit. Uh, sorry, can't help. So lots of talk, lots of press not very many sales. My proto-blog basically became one of the biggest resources on prefabrication that there was, and I was suddenly recognized as a prefab expert. Then when blogging software started in around 2004, um, Graham Hill, a New Yorker, started Treehugger, and I was reading it from the day it started, and I started sending them little tips. You know, you might want to write about this or look at this. And finally, he just calls me and says, why are you doing this? I said, well, I got my blog. This stuff isn't relevant for my blog, so I'm sending it to you. He said, okay, I'll pay you for them. And I'm moving along, getting paid $10 per tip and doing my day job. When out of the blue, he calls me up and says, I want to hire you full time. Turns out that this in about 2008 was when everybody was interested in blogs. Blogging was suddenly huge and big companies were nosing around and he had no company, really. He was paying us, running out of his apartment, paying us with PayPal, uh, suddenly he had to bulk up and be a company. So he hired me and two other writers full time and a president full time. And boom, a week later, Discovery Communication buys it all for 10 million bucks. And <laughs> wow. suddenly, yeah. 
So suddenly I'm working for Discovery, a huge, huge company, which was going to, it was starting up a new TV show called Planet Green, and we were going to be helping Planet Green, and it didn't work. The TV people didn't want to know from the blog people. They weren't interested in what we had to say. There was no fit whatsoever. It was like five years of hell. Why? I wonder, is that, I'm thinking of one of the podcasters I'd be a fan of, Blind Boys, an Irish kind of comedian, um, and many other things, talks about how traditional media doesn't know what to do with podcasts, for instance. And I wonder, is it something similar to that? They just viewed it as something that they couldn't process or a threat or, or, or uh, you know. Well, I think the threat is the thing, but, you know, basically the Planet Green site didn't get any traction. Uh, so they basically closed it down and gave it to Oprah. It's now the Oprah channel. And <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's been longstanding terror within legacy media where they know there is decline and they don't know what to do about it. So blogging generated numbers like, you know, Lloyd presented himself as like the, the Matt Drudge of prefab building and, you know, got himself a paycheck and joined a big website in much the same sort of manner, just, you know, not as nefarious. Or I mean, we don't know if he's hard. So far as you know, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might, we might find out like your premiere, you've indulged in blackface too many times and oh we'll be God. able to have you on again. Oh but I, I suspect that's not the case. No. Probably more like a crack smoking <laughs> Rob Ford. But so the, the next bit, oh, sorry. Um, I was gonna... it, it's just interesting how no one knows what to do with any of this stuff and people throw money at it. Like, you know, we've seen the, the, the fall of MySpace, like the subsuming of bloggers into the corporations. We saw Tumblr get swallowed up by who was it who bought tumblr yahoo and that had the most dedicated audiences but boom yes. done gone we're going to see the same happen to twitter uh, twitter like twitter it's happening right now and it's this one of the things i wanted to talk about which you're leading us on to neatly is like this this uh this problem this dissonance between independent media and corporate media and where what makes independent media good disappears the moment it goes in-house like it falls to pieces. And it seems like you've ridden this horse several times by now. Oh, God, yeah. I've still two more cha horse changes to go here. I mean, then um, <clears throat> the then president didn't let Discovery just pulled the plug on it. They he managed to get a site called the Mother Nature Network into it. And it was another yeah. green site that was sort of corporate greenwashing site really that was very big in the education market and then the seniors market and they took it over and i started writing for them a bit about things that interest me that were in their market like sort of aging boomers and cities and things and then kept writing for tree hugger which they kept going for the six years they owned it they paid us they wouldn't give us any more resources of significance. I was managing editor for a year and a half, and I hated being managing editor. I was terrible. I went, flew to Atlanta and said, you've got to put me back as a writer and not as a managing editor. I can't manage. I can't edit. Anyhow, <clears throat> so they put me back. Um, and hired Melissa, who was absolutely wonderful, but they couldn't make any money with it either. And finally, they managed to, to, to sell it to DotDash. DotDash used to be, it's an old, old site that you will remember as About.com. And About.com 
basically you went to for information. You had something you wanted to look up and it was losing money like mad. And Neil Vogel, who was hired by IAC, a huge, huge media corporation, to fix about comp, said, okay, we're breaking it up. We're going into specialty sites. There's going to be very well, which is health, and there's going to be this one for tech, and there's going to be this one for that. And we'll break it up so that people follow it for the specific interests. And it worked. And then he thought, you know, we don't have anything in sustainability, so yeah, we'll take Tree Hugger. And they bought it and they started putting real money into it and hiring people. But what their whole business was, was attracting search to good, well-written stuff that has reputable people doing it that can get searched on. And they had a whole other team, the Evergreen team, and we were the news team. And the news team was to keep so that Google knew we were really alive and to attract some traffic. But the bulk of the traffic every month was looking up things like what's the best solar water heater or the best this or that, just straight Google stuff. And the big mistake they made was about a year ago, they spent $2.7 billion to buy Meredith, which was a 150-year-old American publisher that published Better Homes and Gardens, People Magazine, Real Simple, 30 different magazines. And they were going to bring their digital skills to Meredith just in time for the whole advertising crash to happen. Hmm. And so Barry Diller up at the top of IAC said, okay, guys, you got to cut costs. And last Thursday, they just came on and said, sorry, guys, we're cutting costs. And I was a cost. So uh, the whole news team gone. And they'll keep the evergreen team, some of them going. And that was that. So I had an appointment with you last Friday, which was great. This morning, I had emails from Green Building Advisor and another magazine saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you. So I'm not particularly worried. I thought I'd have time to concentrate on finishing my book on embedded on bodied carbon, but I'm so busy talking to everyone. But this <laughs> is the funny thing. I went from being a not very good architect to a not very good prefab salesman. But I turned out when I was doing that proto blog that I wasn't a bad writer. And the thing that was my and is, I think, still my talent is that most architects can't Right. They think they have to write like they're intellectuals doing a PhD with words that nobody can understand. They speak to each other, but they can't yeah. speak can't speak to a general audience. Yeah, it's and, extraordinary, really, actually. It's, and it's remarkably consistent. You know, there are exceptions, of course, but um, yeah, uh, it, it's its own abstracted language almost um, that, that is completely impenetrable to, to, to most people, I think, you know. So this became my niche. I had the technical expertise from actually being an architect, bit of financial expertise from having been a developer, a lot of prefab expertise, goodness knows. And um, I fell in love with the concept of Passive House very early in the game for North Americans, started writing about in 2006. And nobody was writing about it then. And so I, this actually was sort of the key to my success in North America, that I became sort of one of the big voices of Passive House. I'm less so now, especially with Fias having started up and doing a lot of promotion. Um, 
there's a lot going on now in that space. And mm-hmm. of course, the passive the passive house accelerator got set up. I'm on their board, but I don't write for them. So I mean, this is where our listeners joined the conversation when we were talking about the uh, sort of disparity in approach to communicating about these things across the Atlantic. Uh, that Lloyd was suggesting he sought out a lot of information that's published in the UK and found a better reception in Western Europe than in North America, uh, and that there is a, a deficit, like in in what's available like the the discourse is lacking somewhat over there which is how it's suggested that's it sounded like you were saying the discourse is lacking over there but i don't know like there's a lot of people who are who are into this like we spoke with ed begley jr uh last summer about his endeavors to build a greenhouse which sounds magnificent yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's it's larger than it should be, but for a Hollywood, you know, uh, celebrity, or whatever, it's it's um it's understated by those standards, you know. Right. Um, uh, and, okay. and there's there's certainly a very sincere, uh, long-standing commitment to try and do it right there, which is which is great to see, you know, um, and a willingness to be kind of warts and all as well, which I was very very pleased to hear too, you know. Um, but it's this is the point, Lloyd. It's. I guess the question, and I don't, it may not apply so much to Canada as to to the States. I don't know, but there is a sense I have, which is perhaps wrong. And, you know, you'd never ascribe a set of characteristics and views to, uh, you know, to to a nation of people in general, you know, in total, because of course, America is the, the kind of country that's got you know, so much, so many different views, so much, so, so much of difference in it. Um, but, um, there is a sense that the notion of less is more, the notion of 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 you know re- reduction, um, right, kind of feels un-American somehow. <laughs> yeah, you know? not for Canadian. You know, I was just um, I just was uh, writing about this this morning. This was in the paper on the weekend. Uh, you know, this house. We're all talking about this house. The wow. Home. This is a house for the record. We'll have to put it in the show notes. Yeah, uh, Caledon <laughs> homes come laden with luxury. So and what are those? That the, You know, the problem that we have here is everybody loves big. Uh, you can't, when you mention the word sufficiency, which I talk about a great deal, and, you know, if you read the last, the last IPCC report on mitigation i mean the whole section on mitigation says guys you've got to look at everything that we do right from the beginning about how much stuff goes into it that if you build this caledon house that's like 80 feet wide it's going to have like millions of tons of upfront carbon as i prefer to call embodied carbon um if you go buy your f-150 Ford pickup electric truck, it's got 40 tons of upfront carbon in it. And you've got to get your brain around this that we can't keep building so much. We can't build single family houses because you've got to keep driving to them and they take so much material compared to multifamily houses. We Mm. can't build electric cars when we should be building electric bikes because you can make 300 e bikes with the same amount of upfront carbon as one Ford pickup truck. Well, no, no, I mean, this is it. Like, this is where you've got this dissonance between corporate and independent media and the messages which are able to come through. Because if you're talking about, uh, we've got a prevailing economic system that's driven by consumption. 
for for good or for ill, broadly, ultimately, for ill, because it's overconsumption that is promoted. And messages like those of the passive house building standard get lost in the mix. They become prestige properties, which are unaffordable. Like issues like public transport, which is something we haven't really spoken about much because mm-hmm. it's not an aspect of the built environment we've covered yet. Like individualism is something which runs right through, particularly American society, increasingly uh, in the UK as well. And this, the messaging that's associated that with that, prevents any sort of collective thinking. Like in terms of uh, car ownership versus public transport. Like, you know, we're going through all sorts of arsehake in the UK at the moment uh, with strikes because the train services are being underfunded, defunded effectively, understaffed. And so you end up with an appalling service where, like trying to go back up to see my folks, half the trains on any given day are always cancelled and there's no warning. Uh, And then you don't ever get to the reasons why that's, happening unless you go hardcore looking for it it's greedy train drivers want more money that's the messaging that comes through right in a similar manner like you know cars are better than public transport cars evs are better than bikes it's yeah and it's because the ecosystem is self-sustaining like it's it's got to make money from advertising it's got to promote what advertisers want i mean you said you worked a lot in greenwashing like uh, I was thinking about The Guardian on my walk this afternoon and the, the mealy-mouthed garbage that is often promoted. It's not all bad. Like, there have been a couple of green building articles that uh, have one in which, in The Observer, which featured our uh, friend, Sarah, former host, um, yeah. about retrofit and energy efficiency. And that was really good. And you've got George Monbiot, like a a light yes. in the dark there but a, a man who you know, to his credit admitted his cock-ups with his uh his wood, wood stoves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> i have three wood stoves i'm yeah. so embarrassed it was a good article yeah um but you this is also the paper which uh ditched the keep it in the ground campaign like the yeah. the fossil fuel divestment as soon as russ bridger was out the door seemingly like don't we don't care about that anymore like it's it's hard it's to still find the best of a bad lot i mean it's got environmental reporters on staff that are good i can think of three of them and most damien carrington zero um, yes yeah, there's, there's some, there are some very good staff in there it's true yeah but i mean this is that it's the best of a bad bunch i mean part of what yeah. i wondered was like where so we joined the conversation with lloyd saying to jeff you need to start making your Passive House Plus content more accessible to a North American audience, to the US and Canadians, which we're well open to because I think it's a a good idea. And as we've often discussed, this information needs to just be disseminated. Right. Yeah. Part of what I wanted to talk about is you and Jeff are more embedded in this culture uh, than Alex and I. We are relatively new. Like, I'm returning to it. And there are a lot of people who are still uh, are just learning about what to do now, who are considering the nature of embodied carbon or uh, energy efficient building methods. Uh, 
where can folk look? Because independent channels are small, increasingly shut down. Corporate media sits over everything. Like the tipping point between having more journalists than PR operatives was passed best part of a decade ago. Like there's a remnant blogosphere out there of which you are. LinkedIn is really active, but it's a strange place. <laughs> and it is strange. you mentioned Substack. Jeff, Lloyd, where do you reckon? Um, well, like I um, actually, I just want to talk about LinkedIn for a minute because I always thought sort of LinkedIn was for sort of right-wing business creeps. And I never actually thought <laughs> it was interesting at all until when I really wanted to look for alternatives to Twitter. I first went to Mastodon, which is sort of, and I found it's it's very quiet. Yeah, uh, I went on to LinkedIn and there were a lot of interesting people there. And once I started going on there every day, they started finding me. And um, I'm finding the conversation there really it's good. intelligent. You get the occasional right-wing crank coming on with a comment. But then I had that on Treehugger all the time. I noticed this morning that one of my worst right-wing cranks has found me on Twitter, which I'm embarrassed to say. But <laughs> it's um, I'm, I'm liking LinkedIn. Um, I'm liking Substack because I have the freedom to write about anything I want. One thing that Treehugger did was they limited the range of things and they cut, they said, I, I, we were one of the first to pick up the whole COVID is airborne thing. We were writing about it in March 2020 when the first studies were coming out and mm. everybody was still hand washing like mad and spraying yeah. surfaces. And I started writing about this from the very first studies saying, you know, this is building science. You guys are doctors, but there's building science going back 40 years. Look at look Corbusier, look at sunlight and fresh air and the whole modern movement. Uh, read this book, Peter Overy's Light, Air and Openness. How all modern architecture was a response to tuberculosis, to airborne bacteria and stuff. You respond with design, you respond with fresh air. You respond by getting all the crap out of your house and going minimalism. This is where minimalism came from. I was writing great stuff connecting architecture to health. And they took it all off, took it all down. I said, why? Really? Said, because you're not a doctor and you're talking about medical stuff. And we don't have doctors to check your stuff. And everybody who works for writing for us has to be an expert in the field. I said, I'm an architect. I have a license. You want to see it? We talk about air quality all the time. I said, nope, nope, nope. And they took it all down. That's and it was great stuff. Now, you know, everybody knows this. But then in 2020 and 2021, it was really important to be there. You know what? I, I, I got uh, just just to in defense of corporate media for a second. <laughs> um, I in March 2020. Because I was similarly, you know, banging, tr trying to bang that drum load at the same time. Um, of the first studies that came out of Wuhan, uh, there was a bus study and a, and a a business conference, I think a two-day business conference study um, that, where they were looking at preprints rather than peer-reviewed papers because um, yeah. it was just so so live at the time. But I pitched a story on this to um, the Sunday Times, Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times, no less, um, the Irish edition, um, and they ran it. Um, and it was critical of the... Um, the the, uh, the the point we were spotting was that the World Health Organization at the time 
we're saying it's not airborne. Um, while at the same time as saying it's not airborne and promoting that loudly on social media, updating their guidance uh, for healthcare buildings so that they increase the ventilation rate for, for hospital wards, for instance, something like 10 or 20 fold um, right. and saying at the same time, it's not airborne. <laughs> so, yeah, they published that. So, it, 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 um, you know, it's not you won't find monolithic views necessarily in corporate media or in independent media. You know, you'll find the odd uh, an editor who, who will publish something from somebody who's got fewer qualifications than you. <laughs> yeah, and now I I have to say very very clearly I'm not disparaging Dot Dash for doing this. Uh, first of all, I signed a non disparagement agreement last week <laughs> uh, as part of my severance. But second of all, you know they firmly believed that this was the way you get credibility with Google is that you have people with legitimate uh, degrees uh, in the science field that they're writing about, and that you don't just have a bunch of bloggers, but you have experts. And by their criteria, I was not an expert in that particular field. So yeah. I may disagree with them, but I understand where they're coming from. They're coming from a point of trying to be rigorous. Yeah. yeah. And we can we can vouch for Lloyd off mic. He hasn't been disparaging either, like sincerely. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah, realize I need to say sincerely and consequently sound insincere. Like for <laughs> real, really, he hasn't been. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to write about anything again. Um, I just published this morning on my Substack. I'd pitched a book about uh, a bit before my current book that I'm working on. I pitched a book about dangerous designs. How terrible our cities are for people getting older and the demographic boom there's a whole bunch of us getting older fast and it's the biggest group and you know the sidewalks are dangerous there are no public washrooms the transit doesn't work there are too many stairs there's no drinking fountains you know everything that's exactly the same in the uk as it is here um and that we have to start thinking about this and um nobody wanted that book. I went to two different publishers and they said, we don't want to talk about a bunch of old people falling down. And they said, but there's going to be a lot of old people falling down and it's a really important subject. Yeah. And well, it's, so it's the wealthy people I wrote as about well. It this morning. It, it's, it's the wealthy people who are going to be falling over and they're yes. going to want something done about it. And they're uh, the, the boomer generation, exactly. not using that as an epithet, like they haven't had to, they've always been given what they wanted. <laughs> like right. they got the best out of the post-war settlement and a substantial portion of them uh, drew up the drawbridge uh, the moment they crossed it. <laughs> but like right. they're going to make things change. Presumably they're going to make things change. Well, in a lot of ways, you know, the really rich who can afford a driver or still can drive, they never take away driver's licenses like they should because it's the yeah. old rich boomers. So they yeah, get yeah. to drive into their 80s, you know, and uh, they shouldn't. Yeah, go on, Alex. No, I was I was just going to say, um, but Lloyd, you have the expertise to write about this. You know, I think that's also something we need to question. <laughs> <laughs> go and fall over a bit, Lloyd, first. Yeah? Exactly. I mean, you have to have you have you fallen over enough to be able to write about this because uh, you may not have the credentials to to do that. Well. I do actually have the credentials to write about it because, as I wrote this morning, in 2014, my mother went to lunch and came out of this fancy restaurant and she tripped and smashed her head in the ground and was never the same. She lived three yeah. years longer, but basically oh, had a major brain bleed. And I spent a lot of time looking at it then. And I went to every lawyer about suing because there clearly was a problem where she fell. It was an 
old building. I mean, a 1976 building with dangerous stairs, but they would say it would be grandfathered in. But there was this canopy for construction built over it, so there was no light. And you went to every lawyer and they'd say, well, you get money in these cases on the basis of how much income is this person going to be losing and how much lifespan and years are they going to be losing? And when she's 96, there's not a whole lot there, is there? And lawyers didn't want to take the case. And I sent letters to the building's authorities and saying, you know, these stairs are really dangerous for this reason, this reason, and this reason. And they never sent a response. And I tried to write about it and that. Nobody wanted to read about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. But in the United States, in 2019, there were 43,000 people killed in cars and there were 46,000 people killed through falls. And that's huge. You think it would be, they'd be screaming to the rafters about this. Yeah. Well, this is a retrofit issue. I think one of the CIH podcasts we did with, oh, I forget her name. I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, she runs a charity or runs a charity, third sector institution that, uh, Look, works with disabled people to retrofit their homes. It's not just about energy efficiency. It's in terms of access as well. I mean, energy efficiency will be increasingly part of it as people's homes get colder because fuel costs more. Yeah, I think uh, it is a, a neglected issue and something Alex has been looking into, actually. It's, it retrofit is not, the word retrofit doesn't have to obviously work just for energy efficiency. It should also be making buildings have a, a lifespan that follows the the, the people that use them. And yeah. the people who use them start from being absolutely tiny babies all the way to the age that they die. And you can't just have buildings that are designed for one demographic or the other. They have to be able to adapt and change. And that's what, what should happen through retrofit or with hopefully more forward planning as well. This is it. Retrofit's a dog turd of a phrase. It's just no good. Like it doesn't even mean buildings. You can retrofit anything. It needs to be more specific. We, we pick up terrible names all the time. It's the worst name in the entire world is Passive House. I mean, mm. what? <laughs> first, you know, especially in North America, where passive means negative. You know, everybody there is forceful and active and go-getter. And if you're passive, it's very negative. It's very mm. feminine. Weak. I don't know. Yeah. They're going to get beaten up on that. It's weak. You know, it's not. You, it's not what you you don't think. It's the point you're getting at is that you're not saying it's bad. You're saying this is your sense of what other people think or what well, yeah, other that, you know passive is, real men aren't passive and yeah. then the other thing also is that in north america there was this whole movement which i don't think it was much as much in europe for passive solar which is what it was called all through the 70s the hippies were making you know the uh big south walls putting tanks of water in them trying to do all of these crazy passive solar things and so when passive house came to north america you know Nobody could tell. Is it passive house? Is it passive solar? Are we doing yeah. trom walls or are we doing insulation? Uh, total confusion. Yeah. And that confusion still happens. And then, of course, because of the idiotic American exceptionalism that everything has to be an invented in America, they go and do the whole schism and set up theus. Mm. Uh, that This is what the world needed. Uh, a whole different passive house system because Americans are somehow different. They should call it Freedom House. Yeah. <laughs> no. But I yeah, mean, such is life, isn't it? 
So it makes it very, very difficult the, to sort of talk about pacifists, to talk about these things when, you know, there's two separate systems. It's like, why would anyone do this? But that's what they did in the US. In Canada, some people go FIAS, some people go FI, depending on their mood or depending on which looks easier. Um, I know. And I remember, I also think um, when you go back to the past of Solar House, I've probably mentioned this in the podcast before, but um, uh, Mike Reynolds, the kind of pioneering kind of hippie architect, I suppose, of, of Earthship houses. Um, right. I remember, I remember seeing a documentary uh, with one of his houses and being completely taken aback because he had, um, he was talking about the, like he, this, this house is built in a desert, a passive solar house. Um, and he was talking about with great excitement about the fact that this house was getting so much power from the sun through the windows um, that uh, a writer who was visiting there, uh, I think it was Olivetti typewriter melted. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not a good thing that that's a dangerous building you know um but yeah. it was but it was that kind of you know look at the amount of grunt and power we're getting through through this approach which uh which just struck me as very very um american it's un- unfair yeah. but, it's, and it took a british writer nick rosen to actually be the only person to actually come out and say what is this crap this doesn't work this is terrible this guy is um uh, it's that you know these this was a cult this wasn't a house design anyhow yeah well i mean that's it it's so you were talking about the uh the sufficiency thing and we talk about demand reduction you know it's yes, the the central idea and that is absolutely antithetical to the american state of mind the or how it sees itself um yeah i was struck just before we started recording you mentioned that uh Something that isn't particularly understood in America is fuel poverty, which is a thing that seems to be driving an awful lot of the debate over here about energy efficiency. I mean, how how come that's the case? Is it because, I mean, you've got loads of poor people all over uh, North America, Canada and the States. Like, are they just so marginalized again? First of all, they're so marginalized. This split, particularly among poor blacks, and the um, they're so marginalized. Second of all, gas is cheap. Even mm. now, when gas is higher than it's ever been, um, natural gas is still cheap by your standards. What do you pay per? Do you buy your gasoline by the liter or by the gallon? I don't know anymore. I- it's 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 liters here, but um, but I don't I don't know what they're doing over in England. They're going backwards in England with their imperial, you know. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. so confusing. But like we're paying here now, I think the buck uh, one fifty Canadian per liter, which is probably a pound, a pound per liter. I don't know what you pay, but like it's probably cheaper, a lot cheaper than you pay. And, I don't know. I don't uh, drive, so I don't know. Yeah. And so it, it's. This wasn't really on people's radar. They don't care about that. I've never heard anyone complaining about natural gas costs. I've heard them compare about filling their pickup trucks when gasoline had $4 a gallon. They were all complaining like blue murder and and Biden starts opening strategic reserves. That $4 a gallon is half of what you pay over where you are. So this is the problem to get people convinced about passive house or energy efficiency or sufficiency yeah. doesn't work. They also have no 
community anymore. You know, when you look at the suburbs, people don't go to a movie house. They go downstairs to their media room. They don't go to public pools. They probably got their own. Everything gets internalized and compartmentalized. If you live in New York, you know, the parks are your backyards and the theaters are your media room. You don't, but, you know, in these giant houses, like the one I showed you, there's a room for everything. What about... What about the use of air conditioning? I believe there's something like 98% of homes are air conditioned throughout the States and the entirety of, well, Southern uh, United States has got uh, air conditioning, which has been put into the detriment of the fabric of the building. So basically, uh, if ever electricity goes up uh, for them much more, that's going to become a real problem because they they have to basically, like we have to heat our homes, they have to cool their homes seriously. But they got lots of coal and half of their electricity still comes from coal. Mm-hmm. And so they still and so, you know, they don't the electricity prices are still pretty economical. And so it's all uh, lots of systems of kicking various cans down the road, and <laughs> avoiding the inevitable conclusion. So, OK, when so I, that- uh, when I wrote my book, I want to describe this to you. Um, I was talking about the book that I'm working on right now, all the attributes that we've got to put into architecture to actually get sufficiency. And I talked, there's simplicity, which is something that, again, I learned originally from engineer Nick Grant, who wrote a lot about simplicity. There's frugality, which is a term that was developed in the car industry about, you know, Don't put in crap that you don't need. How do you just make it simpler? You know, crank windows actually last a lot longer than putting in a motor and a switch. Let's look Mm. at simple systems. Just get rid of everything that you need, which was a sort of design frugality. Well, Um, well, in those terms, like, so the abiding principles for all the work that Alex and I do, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's websites, branding, messaging, Three guiding principles, simplicity, clarity, and purpose. And simplicity is the goal. Clarity is you know what you're going to achieve or what you're trying to achieve. And the purpose is the thing that's absolutely underlying it. And so if you're talking about those systems, like the the OG version of cars was a thing to get you about and to help you do a thing. And then gradually over time, cars begin to perform a function in terms of status, like displaying or assigning or conveying status. And so the windows begin to matter more than the the lifespan of the the actual mechanism. Like having uh, electric windows is suggests a greater status than having crank windows. But man, that, that stuff all turns around again, doesn't it? Well, the thing is, too, that the crank window, the, the main thing is that the car's People talk about them having turned into rolling living rooms, but what they've really turned into is rolling dining rooms. I mean, so many people now get so many of their meals to go, and 
you know, the whole restaurant business was transformed into a takeout business to feeding people in their cars. And this is the extraordinary thing. So you need the windows, you need the big car, you need the big space in between, the fold down thing in the back with 12 cup holders. The Japanese used to come to America and study what people were buying because they couldn't believe they had to have cup holders that held like a gallon. If you see the <laughs> big gulp cups that they sell, they had to keep making the cup holders bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, it's just a whole culture where people, they've trained us also that we can't go 20 minutes without hydrating. This was completely made up by the bottled water industry so that we have to always be walking down with our cup of this or our bottle of that and stay hydrated and all this stuff. This is all marketing fantasy. We're like camels. You can go all day without drinking water. And um, so all of these things that we've been trained to believe, but let's, you know, and that's again, back to sufficiency. How much do we need? What do we need? We don't actually need eight liters of water a day. And so there are all these things that I'm, we've got to hit, but sufficiency is the biggest. It feels to me and, like we need to, we need to get um, something like the old Madison Avenue ad men um, onto um, uh, selling, selling less, you know, work, how to, how to, how to sell, uh, not not consuming things. And I think about it, you know, um, in the context of if you think about a house, like the kind of house you're, you you showed earlier, you know, I mean, for starts, do you like your family? You know, do, do are are they such awful people that you have to have this cavernous big space to keep away from them? Uh, do you like hoovering? Do you like cleaning? You know, um, it's just, I I just it feels to me like there's a piece of work to be done to kind of to to sell the benefits of of simplicity to people and they should be bloody simple you know uh it shouldn't be a hard message to get across to people but it's, it just feels like that's something that uh that, of course the problem is who makes money out of it <laughs> well you know if you're looking at and doing this on a macbook or if you have an iphone um steve jobs was obsessed with uh the work the design work of dieter rams who did brawn all through the 60s and the 70s and who had his 10 principles of design which was good design is as little design as possible was the final one and you know jobs had all of these things designed for simplicity but and he was able to get a premium price for it he's like the only person ever who could charge more by giving you less. What? No buttons, no keyboard in the phone. You're giving me that without a keyboard? Are nah. you crazy? He didn't ever give anyone less jobs. All jobbies, he gave you a much better experience. Like that's what he did. He made you feel good about interacting with the thing. And again, it it, it was driven by status. Like he was no genius in terms of his uh tech abilities. He was a genius marketer. He understood what would drive people, and uh, he rinsed it hard. And they build products that are still uh, completely impossible to repair. And I, I was listening to another podcast where apparently they they were so, I don't know if this is still the same thing now, but they were so actively against repairing that they instituted, because they were forced to, a repair program. But to do the repair program, you had to pay them something in the thousands of dollars of deposit to get a gigantic machine to bring and put your your iPhone in it and be able to do something. Obviously, you go to ifixit.com now and you just do it yourself. But with the might that they have, the power they have, the design and technology capability they have, you would imagine that they could easily build a phone where you could just slip out the battery and it would still be a slim. 
But of course, by the way, they it. have the European Union made them do it. And the iPhone 14, you can actually on your own pry it apart and change the battery yourself. And iFixit, which rates everything, every product that and for its fixability, was just in shock. They had never seen anything like this from Apple. Interestingly, new 14 Pro doesn't. It's built on the older design. They didn't okay. have the time to do it. But if you get the regular iPhone 14, it just opens like a book. Sure, but there should be a, a SIM tray-like experience where you basically put a little thing and your battery pops out. And I, I know yeah. they can do it. It's just that they won't because it's not to their advantage. This is why you need stronger regulations. Same thing with the EU oh, yeah. and mobile phone chargers as well. Just you know, um, forcing all the manufacturers to 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 uh, have interchangeable chargers. You know, that's so, so important. That kind of thinking. I just like to get back though to the state of publishing because I, I do I do wonder when we're talking about this is what about the suit the suitability of publishing in green building and sustainability. Is what we write, and you know, obviously Lloyd and Jeff, you know, you're the ones doing this, so you might be at fault or you might be the, the solution. You know, how suitable is what we write out there? Because there's a lot. It's suitable in what regard? Well, suitability for different audiences. So we've got the, you know, what I call us sometimes the industry is a bit self navel gazing, talks beside yeah. itself with a bubble of information. So we talk to each other, we know all the keywords. And then I'll go on to look at my news for, for the sort of layperson. And I see these articles about heat pumps that completely dumb down the, the whole subject and make it basically completely mad. So where do we stand? Like where is where is the actual sector, or the, sorry, publishing? Where is it contributing to you know, decarbonizing the built environment? Is Ooh. it doing any, a good job? Well, the problem is that so much of the stuff that does get written in the magazines, like Passive House Plus, is speaking to not a lay audience, but is speaking to the professional audience. And the stuff that is done by the journalists, I mean, if you saw that horrible one in The Economist that I got so cranked off about where Economist was telling you how, people how to fix their houses and got everything wrong. And they have the same thing in this morning's Washington Post, the American point of view, how to tell everybody to do the wrong stuff in the wrong order. And this is the thing. Nobody, there's a huge gap that I think is missed where the the writers in the magazines are talking to the people who read those magazines and the others are all, then um, the public writers are doing a terrible job in the regular media. The single best magazine in the world that does this properly, and I don't know if you've seen it, it comes out of Australia called Sanctuary Magazine. And mm. I discovered it about a decade ago, more than a decade ago, and I called it the best shelter magazine anywhere. And mm. they loved that. And they've sent me a free subscription for the last 10 years. But um, it's marvelous because it covers all of this stuff in a way that's really, really accessible. And they it, it's sort of like a dwell magazine with technology mm. with a green green overlay to it yeah and it's it's brilliant you should have a look at that and i love the way you do it in so many of the things you've got writers that are really interesting i was saying this before your columnists are just great um even they do get a bit technical sometimes i know when i was I know. reading but yeah and, and it's a struggle you know uh we we, we um we are always 
the difficulty for me as well when you're running an organization a, a, a magazine like this is is having the presence of mind and the time to step back and and review properly and and implement the changes that you want but you're trying it's a very delicate balance that we're trying to achieve because um uh you you're you you want to give the technical detail a sufficient level of technical detail that that's that a specifier or an engaged self builder for instance um can can read in the magazine uh and and actually have enough enough information even to go out and spec a building almost you know um um but you want to do that on one hand and then you don't want to frighten off the newbies you know um and uh that is really difficult uh, i find i mean we we are we, we keep on trying to refine it and keep on trying to improve it um but um uh, yeah uh, uh we, it's very easy to, to to forget you know it's like that old trick that we, we one of the things we talk about in the podcast sometimes is um avoiding talking in acronyms and the thing that you know or just assuming that people know what you're talking about you know um so you to try to i i like to to conceive in my better moments like this i like to conceive if you're you're in a pub or whatever and you're having a conversation with you know uh, a diverse group of people with very different levels of of uh, of understanding uh, and interest and from different walks of life how do you describe this thing to them you know, how do you find find do it in a way that's engaging? Because even if you're dealing with people who are at the very technical end of green building, they, everybody needs to get better at communicating about this stuff. We all need to learn how to, you know, because we're never going to get any significant traction with this unless we find ways of selling the benefits and of simplifying how we describe how to do it, you know? Yeah, uh, and to reassure you, Lloyd, like we have got, if Jeff will let us, we have got plans to... Uh, to temper some of the content because that's not to get rid of the technical stuff because some yeah. of the hardcore technical stuff is what the audience want, but yes, there is a growing audience for this sort of information uh, and a growing need for this sort of communication. Uh, and so well, one of the things that we were talking about just before was trying to translate passive as plus to this medium as well, in terms of some more uh, hardcore, a place for Jeff to be boring and start talking about numbers which just drives me mad and makes me go smooth. But my brain goes smooth, not my whole body. Uh, that's <laughs> really strange no. analogy. And then on the flip side, to bring some of the stories from Passive House Plus and other places to this space where we can just talk about them pre-digested, like mother birds spewing news into <laughs> baby people's mouths. <laughs> now, let's take an example that uh, Toby Cambry wrote that, invented that wonderful word, heat pumpification and verb yeah. heat pumpify. And he was quoting this other article and he put a proposition in there in a passive house magazine that said, Hey, you know, if we've got heat pumps running on renewables and our goal is to get rid of carbon, that maybe we don't need to renovate so much that we can, ins we can heat pumpify as well as uh, insulate. And I wrote about an interpretation of it in Treehugger, and it was hugely controversial. And people were yelling at me saying, what, you know, all the Passive House people were saying, you're saying we don't have to go do this deep retrofit anymore, that we can just throw heat pumps out. I said, no, 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 that's not what I said. You need both. But maybe we now just go like 90% of the way or 80% of the way. Remember yeah. Pareto's principle, 80 per, the last 20% is as hard as the first 80%. So yeah. what if we go 
80% plus heat pumps. And it was like heresy, heresy. I mean, I was be almost thrown out of the church. So, <laughs> Australia, this is why we decry Jeffrey's zealotry on the. Come on. <laughs> I, I, I love getting thrown out of churches. It's really, <laughs> but it was really an important concept. And I'm yelling at people all the time with this. You know, we want to get off fossil fuels. How do we get off fossil fuels? We do it with heat pumps. But if we don't get the heat pump small enough, then we're just opening up a whole other can of worms, needing too much electricity, needing too much ridiculous uh, greenhouse gas propellants because R290 is limited in size. So we need small heat pumps. All of these things, when you look at it from both ends, you come to the fact that we need insulation and we need teensy heat pumps. And this was hugely controversial. And yeah. then I noticed Toby followed up with another article I just read where he references me saying, oh, we can have bigger heat pumps, but I still think he should do another that we need teensy heat pumps. Nobody ever talks about the refrigerant and the difference between the R290s and the others. We have started doing that, and the embodied carbon focus will lead you in that direction. And we had, as I, um, I don't know if I mentioned to you the other day, Lloyd, we did, it was actually, I was helping one of our advertisers who was promoting a, an R290 uh, hot water heat pump. Um, and um, it had, uh, we're picky about the kind of advertisers that we deal with, so we feel like we don't have to hold our noses in in in, um, right. in, in assisting them. Um, and um, they had, um, it had, what was it now? Uh, God, it was a tiny amount. It was 100. Uh, let me see if I got this right now. It was it was 0.15 of a kilo of R290 in the heat pump, which is the limit on on, allow, on allowing you to have to have that uh, in, in Ireland. That's the limit you can have inside, yeah, um, yeah. because of its combustibility. Um, and um, I worked out that the the uh, the global the global warming potential of the gases uh, if if all of that refrigerant was to leak out it was equivalent to a third of an apple so you know which is so, so it's amazing what you know what and that's that heat pump very important to emphasize and even the, the company who are selling it we were, I was very pleased to see how responsible they are they they will make the point that it's only applicable it's only suitable for uh, very very specific kinds of applications you know where you have a a hot water requirement but maybe you don't really have a space heating requirement you know um right so like like a mid-block, mid-floor apartment would be ideal, for instance, that kind of thing, you know. Um, so that's the other thing with this. It's so important that these technologies are sold correctly, you know. Yeah. Yes. And on, on that point, before we leave heat pumps, uh, it's uh shout out to Ryan Philp, friend of the show, who's got a sub stack up called The Heat Is On, uh, which is, uh, yeah, an interesting article about uh, his critique of the film Glass Onion from a, a hydrogen heating right. perspective and uh, yeah, a bunch of other stuff. It's worth it. It's good writing uh, and uh, yeah. Interesting ideas. Go ahead. I don't know if you're having the gas stove wars that are happening in North America, or if you're following it. I, I read what you wrote about that. It's very interesting. If you go on, yeah, elaborate Lloyd, because it's a, it's a, it's not as familiar and it's not as big an issue here. I don't think, or at it, least not I'm attuned to. Yeah. It, people who are terminally online might be aware, but it hasn't, filtered into the main consciousness. Right. Well, in the States, only about 30% of people cook with gas stoves, but the people who think they're real chefs all have these fancy wolf and sub-zero big six-burner gas ranges. And um, 
what happened is that there have been studies for years saying how bad it is to have a gas stove to be burning fossil fuels in your house, especially yeah. since the regulations on exhaust hoods are terrible. They're not mm. well engineered or engineered at all. Nobody turns them on because they're noisy. Half of them are recirculating, which does nothing. Mm. And the gas stoves have been marketed for years as being the chef's dream. The gas company has been pushing them this way for years. And what gas companies don't sell a lot of gas to, for the gas stoves, they don't use that much because they're not on that much, but it hooks your house onto gas. So mm. if you've got a gas stove, you probably got your gas water heater and a lot of people have gas dryers and you're hooked on gas. So anyhow, the consumer, the, one of the people working in the consumer protection agency said, um, we have to look at gas stoves and have some regulations and maybe consider banning them. And he said this. Wow. And the right wing went nuts. Like one <laughs> senator was doing a tweet, God, guns, gas stoves. These were his three things. I, I saw Kanye Trump and my gas stove. <laughs> in one screenshot yes, tweet. Others saying they'll take my gas stove from my gold dead cold dead hands. The thing is, is that these guys all represent states that nobody has gas stoves. The gas stoves are all in the cities that had gas before they had electricity. New York, San Francisco, and Chicago. There's a concentration. Everybody else in America cooks on an electric stove. And people who have gas stoves, they also are very, very they love them. They think they're faster and they're better. It took me years to convince my wife to give up our gas stove until finally, just in November, it died. All the electronics had died in it. So I finally switched to induction just then. She now loves it. You know, the kitchen is cleaner. The kitchen is cooler. You can stand by the stove making chili all day and you don't get warm. She just loves it. But it's turned into this giant culture war. And this is what's so stupid about it. You know, the toxins that people are putting into their houses when they use a gas stove. And we're sitting and worried about like, what, a cup of R290 when they've mm -hmm. got like pure natural gas flowing into their house so, all the time. You know, when they when when people use hairspray, what's the propellant in the hairspray? What's the propellant in my shaving cream? It's R290. It's propane. Ever since they had to get rid of the fluorocarbons, they're filling all of our shaving cream cans with <laughs> flammable propellant. propellant. And yeah. we're surrounded with it. And we've got to get rid of all of it. It just reminds so, me, if social media being around, Lloyd, when um, uh, when the advent of plumbing coming into houses was was, uh, was 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 up for discussion, do you think there'd be the right wing would have been saying, you, you'll never take my bucket of shit away from me? <laughs> They did. How do I cold dead hands? <laughs> they did at the time. They, you know, people like the French, the, uh, most people in France did not have indoor plumbing until well into the 30s because they didn't believe that it was healthy uh, to have <laughs> a pipe carrying all that sewer gas into their house. And it took, uh, it was a revolution to get indoor plumbing brought into a lot of places in France. And it was hard in the States too. I wrote in my last article on gas stoves how. In the 1830s, when they first invented the enclosed stove, men hated it. They didn't want women to have those stoves because they liked the social coziness of everybody getting around the open fireplace. The women who were 
was the second leading cause of death after childbirth for young women was for their clothing to catch fire. And everybody was walking around sick with asthma and everything because all the cooking on open fires. But it took 30 years for the stoves to catch on because men liked the, the character of the open fire. So it's always a slow transition. It's funny how that works. It's like uh, Alex told me about uh, electric cars had the potential to to be taken up in the same way petrol cars are. It's just the the marketing of electric cars as the feminine car put off too many men. And so uh, the, the the petrol motor won. Men, men were supposed to be able to use, you know, like greasy tools and work on the machine, whereas this clean car that couldn't go too far as well started being advertising well, and- for women. And the crank. The crank was really hard in the original gasoline-powered mm. cars, and the electric cars, which didn't have a crank, were seen as uh, definitely more feminine. And you know, real men can crank that car to start it. So it was the. Um, but then you've had this in where you live. I mean, how? When first time I went to the UK, and uh, a lot of people didn't have, have have central heating, right? I mean, when you were kids. You mm. probably knew all kinds of people without central heating, right? Um, I don't know. I grew up very middle class, so you know, uh, huh. perhaps, perhaps not. My mum's house, where when her my my grandparents finally were able to buy a, a house in their sort of mid forties, so they built a house in or bought a, a wimpy home in the nineteen nineteen sixty five. It was retrofitted with central heating yeah. five years later. Whereas my my parents' home, where I grew up in France, uh, was built in 1960 and already had central heating built in. It was already part of it. So that's an interesting balance between the French, you know. Okay, maybe they didn't have uh, toilets in the 30s, but they certainly caught up on the central heating. I'll just say that. <laughs> so all of these things in different cultures take time. They just and I, but like everybody, do you all you all cook on gas ranges, right? No, we're electric. No. no? Oh. I I do now. I've just moved into a house at the end of last year, which has a, a gas stove, and I've been without gas for a, a long time. I'll tell you what, it's so much better than the shitty electric hob I was using. Yes, the regular resistant coils are awful. But yeah. uh, induction hobs, I had a tinker with one uh, last Christmas. And uh, yeah, man, you can get to grips with it. Like it's learning a new method, uh, and that will take time, but... It gets hot fast. It's good. Oh, good. I I, I cooked a boiled egg for the first time the other day, and I put in the water and go to the fridge to get the egg, and it was already boiling in the time it took just to go to the fridge and back. It's amazing. It's it's bizarre, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you're talking about these things taking time, Lloyd. The problem we have is that we don't have any. We don't have time. Mm -hmm. I know. And that's why we need legislation, for instance, and that's why – to get back to Passive House, of course, and to get back to the problems that I see when I watch like grand designs is that everybody still wants the grand designs with the giant windows and the big rooms. And uh, I look at these things and think, well, like, look at this year's grand design at the winner. The Passive House, I think, made the shortlist. And then this big ugly house in the country one with that made no sense whatsoever 
Should yeah. we be giving awards to houses like this? No, there, there should be. Yeah, there, I mean, and it's a problem when you look at the, the publishing too. I mean, so we, um, you know, I, I look at other publications and the stuff that some of the stuff that we've done in the past too, and the tendency is always to want to publish the shiny new thing and, to, and something that looks, you know, uh, I don't know, that grabs your attention in one way or another. Um, but um, we're trying to now restrict ourselves. It's like the Passive House Trust with their awards, for instance. They they are trying to only accept entries from uh, projects that have been in use for a period of time. Um, we're, so we'd be trying to do that. We're looking for actual post-occupancy data when we publish buildings. Um, we were trying to have modest houses. I mean, I got a press release a couple of weeks ago on a, a passive, from a heat pump supplier on a, a Passive House that they'd done in England. Um, and the press release was talking about how it was 6,500 square feet, as if that's a good, you know, as if that's not a problem or there's not, a, there's not an inherent contradiction between a, a, a notionally, well, uh, between an energy efficient standard for the house and the fact that it's a, it's a couple of empty, ne- empty nesters in this enormous um, cavernous space, you know. Um, so it is, it is important to try and... Uh, you know, restrict as a publisher to, to kind of try and avoid the shiny new thing and um, and show people uh, that you know some, there's a kind of new kind of architecture we need to talk about now. A yes. Kind of uh, inherently, kind of you know, there's a modesty to it. Uh, there's a there's a beauty to it, absolutely. And we shouldn't be we shouldn't be um, you know. Uh, All right, but one thing, background. one thing at a time. If we need to embed. Like things like passive house principles into more efficient building, you got to start somewhere, and the only place you're going to be able to get it started is with rich people who can afford to have it done. But you can, yeah, but you can fetishize when you get people like Lacaton and Vassal, the French architects, winning the Pritzker Prize for uh, for you know uh, this approach to architecture, which is sort of in some cases just do nothing. You know, um, their, their their advice being leave it alone, don't actually build anything. But it's, you're still you know? talking about rarefied circles. I'm not talking about like the 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 man who made a bit of money and he wants his McMansion. Like you've got to tackle. That's the biggest chunk of people that you got to get through to. Well, yeah, and I think I think we can. Like even we had me were okay on the other week, and just before Christmas, we were president. Yeah, yeah. And he said that he was embarrassed to cite them or somewhat like embarrassed in saying they were his favorite architects that year. Like that's well rarefied. Like they're well, not normal as architects. They're, I know yeah. they're, they're from the left field and you've got to hit, like if you want to get, no, but, it, but, it, but it will affect, you know, in the same way that you, I don't know. No, it won't. It no, won't. Like wimpy homes got out of installing EV points because it's cheaper in, in face of incoming regulations, like big developments throughout the UK, are getting their foundations poured. So they get the pour in this year, delay the rest of the project because that enables them to keep building to older an, an older set of regulations. Like they're the folk you need to hit. It depends only- though, because when, when you have, you know, I know developers who uh, who will look ahead at changes to the regulations because they don't want to be doing different phases of a scheme to different regs because that's messy, you know? Right. Um, so they were given the opportunity to build to the lower standard if they got the foundations in now, boom, yeah. they're in, doing yeah. it. Yeah. But that's the market you've got to shift. And you've got to start at the top because it's only the people at the top who are going to pay for it. But look at Goldsmith Lane, I think it's called. Look at that. Street, yeah, yeah. Amazing, yeah. Beautiful, yeah. Beautiful 
Passive House, articles in The Guardian saying, interviewing the people in them in the middle of all of the energy poverty crisis, saying it's the first time we've been warm in our life. And that, to me, rather than the what you're talking about, the high end, that's mm. the kind of message that I think resonates with everyone, doesn't it? That gee, No, not in this country. This way? <laughs> We Was like it? our poor people to suffer in this country. Why should they have a nice? Why should they get to live in a nice place when I live in my drafty 1930s semi? Like, I still think, Jeff, do you remember when we were at Bess, we were having that uh, that group um, podcast episode, and I can't remember who said it, but one of the uh, the guests talked about keeping up with the Kardashians retrofit. Unfortunately, that's what we need to do. We need to get some super popular people to get up. retrofit. That will make a difference. And I know it sounds terrible, but that's where the difference will be made. Uh, please, please tell me I'm, I'm wrong, but I, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the late great green economist Richard Douthwaite, who used to write for us for many years, radical green economist, uh, an amazing man, humbling kind of man to know. He um he said this something tantamount to the same thing was that the way the day we'll know we've, we're winning is when we're uh, when our when these buildings are featuring in Hello Magazine or whatever you know. Um, right. But I just despair at that. I mean, uh, it's got. A- what you've got you've got to work with what you've got you can't wish the world in your world you want no, I, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not I'm not suggesting we do um and I do think if we go back to the Ed Begley uh, uh interview the th- one of the points I really wanted to tease out with him um and that, uh, maybe this is the way you drill at home is that you want these people sure maybe you're not going to convince Kim Kardashian to 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 reduce tenfold the size of her house you know um but um, you, you know, unless you build to standards like Passive House, for instance, um, it's not, you're going to have a building that, that a lot of those buildings are not really going to, I would say, going to be terribly comfortable all the time because you've got, you know, buildings that are, you're struggling, the heating uh, and cooling systems are struggling to achieve an equilibrium, to to, to achieve a level of, of thermal comfort. And um, that, in other words, you would think that people that the the one percent would be getting the best of everything, and they're not necessarily, you know. No, they're not because nobody understands what comfort is, and all the time, you know, they want the big glass view and they want all of this, and they say, um. Has anyone explained the principle of mean radiant temperature? Like if you've got a cold wall, you're going to feel cold because the heat's coming out of your body. Even you, Kim Kardashian, will feel cold in a cold well. And they don't understand that you have to build it properly to be comfortable. And particularly in colder climates, like, again, these people who build these monster homes, they don't know that. Their walls, they're spending money on 8,000 square feet, but they don't know that their walls should be more than R20. And this is the fundamental problem when people don't understand comfort. It's why smart thermostats are are stupid. They don't make you feel any more comfortable because if your walls are lousy, you never will. And so this is the message that I keep trying to go. And in Pacifest for years, especially in North America, when energy was so cheap, I would say the three most important things, and I got this from L. Ron Burel, three most important things about Pacifest are comfort, comfort, and comfort. Mm-hmm. And you just have to keep hammering that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think in terms of the only way I can see things changing is, so in the UK in particular, Homes are a store of wealth rather than a nice place to be lived in. People just happen to live in them. And 
the only thing that's going to change the fabric of the structure is the asset value. So where energy efficiency begins to affect the financial value of the asset, that's when you'll start to see fabric first taking hold in a meaningful way rather than a, I mean, it's still quite a rarefied way because it's so dear to get to do and get right uh, at all. Um, well, when you retrofit, it's more challenging. There's yeah. no excuse of new builds. Yeah. 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 Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the excuse is no one cares. Right. But it could they're be done given, better. They're not given a chance to show that they care because yeah. it's, you know, because you restrict the, you know, if you if you if you create the conditions to to have a buyer's market nearly, uh, sorry, a seller's market nearly all the time, you know, um, then what else is going to happen, you know? Yeah, but the only way to switch the way people think around is you need a simple metric for understanding the value of the asset. English people, in particular, are obsessed with house prices, like right. So they will want to know how to tell if their house is worth more money than their neighbours. And all of a sudden, there will be a tipping point whereby comfort is the indicator. You know, we spoke with Ross Kremin, Passive House Pioneer in Ireland, and he talked about how difficult it was for him to go and stay in other people's houses or his families because it's so much less comfortable temperature-wise. And people really feel the difference when they visit his house. And I'm sure everyone who lives in a passive house will be able to tell a similar tale. Like the moment you see people beginning to appreciate comfort and value comfort, that's when you'll begin to see a proper shift. And we're a long way off that. Yeah, but everybody thinks you get comfort by calling up a mechanical guy to come in and put in a bigger unit and a bigger fan. And they don't realize that comfort comes from the fabric. And that's the change that we've got to make. Yeah. Now, the well, other thing, though, to go back to your economic question is that there's got to be a sort of calculator dial that we can show that, you know, the economic value of a house, you've got so much to spend in a month, and the it's a combination of your financing cost and your operating cost. And if the operating cost dials down because it's a passive house, then the financing cost can dial up. And there should be a very simple calculator that you could just go on and say, this as a passive house, this is a regular house, and you can afford to pay this much more for the passive house with current interest rates or depending on the interest rates. And given how costly money is right now, I bet the passive house, and given how costly uh, heating fuels are right now, this very simple calculator would say, I'm much better off buying a passive house, paying a little more for it. Absolutely. It still wouldn't capture the comfort benefits, unfortunately. No. Um, but but you're right. I mean, uh, there's a value in that. I'm thinking mindful on that on the comfort points in terms of trying to trying to quantify that or monetize it. Tim Martell, um, the the author of PH Ribbon, the the AECB's embodied carbon calculation tool, did it's a very small scale survey of of users, and it's the kind of thing that needs to be done at a much bigger scale. Um, where he, they they just asked people how much they'd be willing to pay per month for you know constant even temperatures within a certain range you know um, and it worked out this is a few years ago at I think it was fifty pounds a month um, in the UK so you know there's people that that's 
uh, just the start of, of people starting to think about these things, you know, um, uh, which uh, we need to get a grip on, frankly, you know. The other thing that people have to start to value that they never, ever have is resilience about, you know, they buy insurance in case of disaster to protect their house's finances. But we have to start thinking of what happens if the electricity or the gas goes off because either Ukraine or, you know, Drax ran out of trees or something happens and uh, that, you know, what happens? How is it? How are we? going to survive this. And again, in a passive house in the States, in the coldest polar vortexes happening, uh, passive houses can go for a whole week without people being cold inside. Yeah. And when the when the summer comes, when it gets up to be 100 degrees, passive houses are cooler inside and nobody puts a value on resilience. But yeah. uh, we have to start valuing resilience, comfort, as well, well as the straight economics. Well, I think before we meander our way into another subject, uh, resilience, uh, which I think, all right, we'll get back to that because I've not heard anyone speak about that in those terms. Um, Didn't this in my my TEDx talk then, Dan? Well, I tried. You're so (laughs) boring. Uh, Yeah. Well, um, welcome to Zero Ambitions. Uh, We, Lloyd, our new North American correspondent, um, (laughs) <laughs> so uh thank you very much so yeah, back to the yeah well back to the original theme where should people be where do you reckon people can be reading up on uh these issues so tree hugger for the back catalog and the things yeah. that have gone missing there are, there's the internet archive i'm sure you can check what was the magazine you mentioned sanctuary uh i think that sanctuary magazine from australia you should, guys you in particular should have a close look at it it's a beautifully put together and mm. it's a subtle, subtle passive house sell. You know, that they're selling the gorgeous architecture first, and then there will mm. be a gray box at the side with all the technical stuff. Yeah. It's very well done. Yeah, I've seen it. It's, it's a lovely magazine. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the Passive House Accelerator website is getting better all the time, and they have a magazine that Mary J- James is uh, putting out now. A little magazine. Yeah. Um, and that's what I can think of right now. And of course, everybody should be reading Passive House Plus. And your Substack. Uh, my Substack, Lloyd Alter. It's called Carbon Up Front. Cool. All right. Well, we'll stick a link to that in the, the show notes. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh it's been great. Um, and we'll we'll no doubt be speaking in the the near future. Anything else, lads, you want to talk about? Or no, about thanks a million, Lloyd. That was great. great. Yeah, yeah. All right, big up. Um, in that case, uh, subscribe if you're not already. Like, please review it. Please review it. Someone please review it. Jesus. <laughs> and subscribe Passive House Plus. Advertise if you can. Join the ACB. Join ACAN. All those things. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>